0: I created for each of you a workbook because I'm a professor and that's the kind of thing that I do. Um, And so I'm going to cover a lot of biblical territory. Uh, So hopefully the workbook and the screens up front, if you can't see the ones really close, hopefully you can see the ones up front as well. Um, So my goal is that you can follow along with me. There's a lot of stuff in the workbook that I know I won't be able to cover today. So I give you full scripture references of things I'm going to refer to, and I'm giving you kind of more background information in the workbook than I have the time for, Um, but I want to dive into the Bible, and my prayer is that these workbooks will serve as a launching pad for you to return to ideas I present today so you can ponder them. Uh, on your own, as well as keeping along with me over the next hour and a half. Get ready, get ready to go. Uh, So I want this to be be the beginning of a conversation. Um, When I get excited and I speak, I have a tendency to speak very quickly. I know this about myself, so as I start going and I drop some major theological bombs on you and I'm speeding on to the next point, please raise your hand if I'm moving too quickly and I will slow down and revisit. Okay, is what I tell my students as well, because um, I have a tendency to cover a lot of material really quickly. Um, so I want to take you on a journey through scripture with me today, but I want to ask you to do me a favor in this. I've provided you with a lot more scripture than I can ever um, specifically talk about, I've, um, but I want to ask you to not agree with me. When I say things, I'm gonna share a lot of Bible with you. That's truth. Agree with all of that 100%. Um, but the reason I ask you to do this is that I want you to go away. I want you to go back to the Bible, and I want this to be your own revelation because my revelation won't carry you. So if I say things today that challenge you, I ask you to go back um, because this is how we renew our minds by meditating on the word of God. So um, I definitely, I want to start at the beginning. I'm going to walk from Genesis to Judges to Luke in an hour and a half. It's going to be a miracle, and I'm going to go really slowly and hopefully take you with me. Um, but this is, I believe, it's really important to see God's story unfold throughout history. Because what I'm going to talk about today is something that has been in God's heart for humanity since he created us. And so there is a lot to it, and I don't want to leave anything out. So as I start, um, I want to start with image bearers and what it means to be in the image of God, to be created in the image of God. And I grew up in a church that wasn't super empowering of women. Uh, Women didn't teach. Women um, weren't recognized as leaders in the church. And it was based on scripture that you know they had read and I'm not going to debate those scriptures today. I'm going to talk about what I believe God's heart is for all of us as women. And I heard Genesis 2 preached a lot. Um but I didn't necessarily hear as much teaching that I remember about Genesis 1. And if you know the difference between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, Genesis 1 is like the big picture of creation. And Genesis 2 takes you step by step through that story. So Genesis 2 is where we get Adam being created and God not wanting him to be alone, so he created Eve. Um, but when we look at Genesis 1, um, we start to see God's meta picture. So meta is like the big picture. And uh, I, I looked at scriptures like 1 Corinthians 11 that say, A man not, ought not to have his head covered during worship, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the expression of man's glory. For man does not originate from women, but a woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. So I read scriptures like this as a kid, and it seemed like kind of the message and the relationships to women in my church made sense. Um, But then I started to grow up, and at 20... Well, at 18, I joined the United States Army. So this is actually my Army uniform. And it's dating me a bit because they have changed them since I was in the Army. Um, But I joined the Army. And I enlisted. And then I went into officer training. So at 21, I was assigned my first platoon. And I had a platoon of 60 men who, by order, would follow me into battle. Their lives were in my hands. And they would be court-martialed if they didn't do what I told them. At the same time, at 20, I was in a church that I had no voice in. I was in a church where I couldn't speak. And I thought in my head, well, I'm okay with this. If This is, this is God's order. He made, you know, men and then women. And so... Um, I can just I can be who I am in the secular world, and I'll just go to church, and I'll worship, and I'll learn about God, and that's fine. And I really thought all the way up until I came to Wheaton a year ago that I would never have a role as a woman in leadership in the, in, in the organized church in America because I didn't really think that I would be heard as a woman. And we're not there yet. I mean, we're not entirely heard yet. But I started to see scriptures like Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, 3 through 4 says, the sun is the radiance and expression of the glory of God. Reflecting God's Shekinah glory. This isn't in there. You can write it on the image of God page. Um, Yeah, sorry. Uh, I'll try to keep you along with me with the follow along part. I'll tell you where we are. Um, So he's the Shekinah glory, the light being, the brilliant light of the divine and the exact representation and the perfect imprint of his father's essence, and upholding and maintaining and propelling all things by his powerful word. When he had accomplished purification from sin and established our freedom from guilt, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels, since he has inherited a more excellent and glorious name than they. I realized for all of these years I had thought of myself as a dim reflection of men. Because God made us in their image. So if you will, this is my very poorly practiced um, little lesson. But I think 2016 is the year of mirror examples at Loden. Um, so I saw, here's God. He's the light, right? And so he creates man like a mirror to reflect his image. So we see we have this kind of dim reflection on the ceiling. I thought that was me. That if you look in the mirror you see god if you look on the ceiling i see a reflection of god that passes through man and when i started to think about this do any of you think that jesus reflecting of the glory of god the father is any less god nobody here does we don't ever think that about jesus so why do we think that about ourselves why would we think that we less reflect god because we were created in the image of man, because we were also created in the image of God. And when we look at Genesis 1, which we're getting to, God didn't create women as the reflection on the ceiling. God brought humanity onto the earth so that when we look into the mirror, we see the whole room is lit up. And it would be if it were really dark, I promise, right? So he didn't create a small mirror and we're the reflection on the ceiling. When he brought women alongside men, He created a perfect reflection of himself on the earth. This was his intent all along. Let me prove it to you. Um, Let's turn to the Bible. Now you can go to your image bearer page. And we see in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And this is our bedrock scripture for today. I'm going to tell two stories that I believe represent this image of God And the good news is, even though I'm covering a lot of scripture, I'm going to have the same three points every time. This isn't something that just happened at creation. It happened in the Old Testament. It happened in the New Testament. And it's our calling today. So in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they— that's the word you put in the blank— May rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, am I emphasizing the thems enough, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every, every living creature that moves on the ground. Now I love it because when God says something in scripture that's pivotal to the identity of humanity, he doesn't just say it once. He says it more than once. So we see it again in Psalms 8. David says it. You made them, mankind, rulers over the works of your hands, and you put everything under their feet. Not one dude. All of them. Then we get to Jesus. And Jesus, in John 5.19, I think, gives us the first example of what this actually looks like. How do we reflect God's image? How did he make us to reflect him? And I think we see this in John 5.19, in Jesus reflecting God on earth. Listen to it in the context of Jesus reflecting God on earth. Jesus says, the Son of Man can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So Jesus looked into the mirror, he saw the Father, and he represented that whatever the Father was doing on earth. So I want to take a minute right now before I tell you what I think and what theologians think, and I want you to think about what you think. So on the next page, could you please write down what do you believe that you reflect of God? What is the image of God that you're reflecting? And what is the image that you bear personally? We'll just take a couple minutes and write that down. Okay, so hopefully that gives you just a minute to reflect and kind of think about, hopefully I didn't drop too many bombs on you in the last five minutes, but um, see, I get to say things like bombs and stuff because I'm wearing my camo. Um, (laughs) uh, So when we come back to this and we think about this in um, Genesis 126, there we have the slide um, in Man in the Mirror. Um, Really, Genesis 126 I believe that this first identifies why God created mankind. And in this scripture, I think that for us as Christians, um, there's, there's a lot of, of theological talk about how all of humanity reflects something of God. All humankind reflects something of his image. But as Christians, we don't just reflect the substance, the creativity, the intellect, the... the love and desire for relationship that God has, we reflect something more than that as Christians. We reflect in Genesis one twenty six through 28 as the called out people, as God's people, we reflect his authority to rule and reign in the earth together. And this is what sets us apart. This is what set Israel apart, and this is what Should set the church apart today. That God's intention with Israel, when He made His promise to Abraham in Genesis 28 14, He said, Your descendants will be as countless as the dust of the earth, and you will spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. So as soon as um, the fall happens, and Adam and Eve leave the garden, God is ready to set a people in place in the earth who are called out to rule and reign like him, not so that they're this special people that have all these special things, but so they can set a standard for the rest of the world and be a blessing to the rest of the world. But we have to start with each other, because this whole promise Everything that God said in Genesis one twenty eight, that God said in Genesis 28.14, he calls a people, not a person. And so when we think about the calling of God, we're so individualistic in America sometimes. And we think, well, what am I supposed to do? And God wants us to start with, who am I supposed to be? And I love it, because in the army, you give up your identity, and you go by rank most of the time. And so I've walked in the world of not having to be me all the time. And that there are things that we can do in relationship to other people that really reflect the the authority and the image of God in this earth um, really well. So I want to start with uh, looking at this. What pieces of this do we take away? Well, the first one is that we know in Genesis 1.26, we reflect his authority to rule. Um, I love it. We talked about this at the last loaded event that we're called out to be royalty. And he has, from the very beginning of time, this is what he created us for. Um, He created us to function like him. And we can only function like him when we are in him. He created us... um, to be like him substantively. That's hard to say, substantively. Um, So we reflect his personality. We reflect his love. We reflect his creativity and his desire to relate. And we also reflect his plurality. So when theologians look at Genesis 126 through 128, they arrive in three camps. Can you guess which three camps they are? We have the function camp, we have the substance camp, and we have the relationship camp. And across all three of these camps, there is one thing, one truth, that remains the same across all three of them. Any guess what that thread is? Close. Close close. Obviously, God is love, so we have to reflect that. But it's who we love, right? All three of these actually reflect relationship. So whether we are ruling, he, he called them to rule in relationship. Whether we are reflecting his personality, his personality is about loving people. Why love if it's just love, you know, if you're just loving all by yourself? Um, and if God himself is plural, if he is a Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, he would never create us alone and be for if we are going to be able to reflect his image on earth. So I believe across all of these three themes, there's truth in each one of them. And what we have to walk away with is that God's called me for something. And I think probably what God's called me to within his church is going to happen in relationship. It's going to happen in the context of other people. So now I want to come back to this. What does image bearer mean to you now? And the Latin word, of course, is imago Dei, which is really fun to say. So what does image bearer, or if you want to be Latin, imago Dei, mean to you now in the context of understanding those three views and the four scriptures that we've talked about? So I have to start here with Genesis 126, because this was where it all started to shift for me in looking at, well, God created all of humanity in his image, but how has he created us specifically as his people uniquely in his image? And I love this quote that's on, um, I think it's like two pages back. See, this is the problem with doing this. Um, in your books, um, on the page with, I'll just look in Sue's right here. There, we'll share. This is... It's uh, very organic this way. On page six, um, this great quote from Bartholomew and Goheen that says, um, the greatest similarity to between God and humanity is humankind's unique calling by God himself to rule. That he, God has given us a unique calling and the ability, if we respond to him, to have authority to rule and reign and function like him. And this is so amazing because he created Adam and Eve, all of humanity, in his image. We no less glorify God than anybody else. And so we have this particular calling on us as women. This is huge for me. It was huge for me. It was a big, it was a long journey for me in a lot of ways. But realizing that God's called us all together to rule and reign. And when I think about this, as I move into the first story, um, I want to start with James one twenty-two. And James 1 and 22 uh, says, do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks into the, at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. This is like a man looking at his natural image, his natural reflection in a mirror, but Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. When we look into the mirror, our mirror is the Bible. And the Bible, the perfect law, accurately tells you who you are. Not the mirror you look into and see your natural image. What we see reflected back in his mirror, in the Bible, is his attributes his creativity, his intellect in us, his capacity for relationship that he's put in us, his ability to communicate and imagine. We should see in that mirror him in relationship, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see his love, we see him ruling and reigning. This is our function as well, to rule and reign like them. I like to think of the Bible as our skinny mirror. You know how retailers use mirrors that make you look smaller. When we look into the Bible, we see ourselves as we should be, not as we actually are. Or how God sees us and what he is bringing us into, the Bible tells us who we are going to be. And this is the journey that we are on. Um, I want to tell you two stories that reflect this theme in the Bible. There's lots of stories of God calling people out. And a lot of times when we talk about these stories, we talk about them in the context of an individual, But I think what we find is when we look at most of these stories, people don't act alone. They act with other people. And um, we know that God called us into the earth to be blessing to the nations. And you know, Israel never really made it. They didn't actually fulfill that calling. They were called out. They got Jerusalem with David and then Solomon as king, and they probably came the closest with Solomon but they never held on to it where they actually became a blessing to the nations. We know one nation came when Solomon was in in rule, but we never saw the, the regions around them being transformed. Half the time, what did Israel do? Do we know? Yeah, they rebelled. They didn't follow God. They adopted the culture around them rather than being a blessing to the nations, which is spreading the culture of God, the culture of the kingdom of heaven, and to all the nations around them, which in love, in the rule and reign of God, is a blessing to the whole world. And so we have the opportunity today to do this same thing, to be a people set apart as a blessing. We together, and I think together only, can be a blessing to the whole world. And this, I believe, in in the bride that is the church, is what Jesus is coming back for. A people who, they, when they say, what am I called to? I am called to you, and I am called to you, and I am called to you, and I am called to Jesus, and we are all called together to pursue something bigger than us. And um, I know that when we look at James one twenty-two through 25, I believe in my heart that women carry 50% of the responsibility. So we have to know who we are called out by God to rule and reign in the earth. And so in the Old Testament, of course, Israel moved into lands, God gave them lands, after the Garden of Eden, and primarily, they had to battle for the promise of God. So when they went, into, when they went to the promised land, right, they were in slavery, Moses came and got them, he brought them out, and they get to the promised land, and they have to battle to keep that land. If they'd stayed in the Garden of Eden, they'd just subdued it and ruled and reigned happily forever, like a fairy tale. Um, but we're in this, in this fallen world, and so Israel in the Old Testament, we start off b- physically, naturally battling. And so we see uh, partnerships emerge throughout the Old Testament. And a lot of times we can look at these partnerships because it was a battle time in Israel's history, and we see armor bearers come alongside the leaders that God sets in place. Now, the great thing is, it's not always clear who's the leader and who's the armor bearer in all of these stories. So clearly, I'm going to take you through the entire Bible from uh, Moses (laughs) to today. I know, if you feel panicked, don't worry. We'll, We'll make it through on time. Um... And so when we think about armor bearers, the image of God has been reflected through people's relationships throughout history. And let me give you some examples. Of course, I'm going to focus in on the women, because we're all women, and we want to know how this kind of fits into our stories, especially coming out of Genesis 1. Um, But when we look at Moses and Aaron, um, they together approached Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron. And when God called Moses out at the burning bush, do you know what Moses said? don't make me do this alone. I'm not, I'm not a great speaker. I, I stutter. I get nervous. And God says, that's fine. I'll bring Aaron alongside you, a Levite. So Moses was a prophet and Aaron was a priest. And Moses was hesitant to do it alone. This is important because this is going to tie into our story about Deborah. Because in the next little time s- segment, and I gave you all the, the Uh, Bible references, so you can look them up and read these stories. Please read these stories. Um, Because we see Deborah and Barak, they rode together into battle, Barak driving the chariot and Deborah alongside him in the place where his armor bearer would have been. So we say that Deborah was his armor bearer. And Deborah ran ran went alongside him as the prophet in a supportive role. And Barak, kind of like Moses, he was hesitant to lead alone too. And so he led the the army of Israel into battle, and Deborah supported him prophetically in that. We see David was initially Saul's armor bearer, and when David became Saul's armor bearer in 1 Samuel, he had already been anointed king. So he was serving a king that he knew he was going to usurp, and when you think about armor bearers in the Old Testament, the only people that had armor bearers were kings, generals, commanders, and chiefs. These were important people, that had armor bearers. And so David was Saul's armor bearer. And in 1 Samuel 18, Jonathan takes off all of his armor, Saul's son. And Jonathan had an armor bearer. We know that he did because we hear the story about him and his armor bearer um, defeating the Philistines by themselves. He was a pretty tough armor bearer too. Um, So Jonathan was probably a general in Saul's army and he had a very important role, but he took off all of his armor when he recognized the anointing of David, and he gave all of his armor to him. And so we think a lot of times about David and his kingship in Israel, but he actually had people that partnered with him in different seasons of time. Um, we see this with Elisha and Elijah. Elisha didn't want to go on alone without Elijah in, first, in Second Kings. So we see, we see it again in the New Testament that God actually starts pairing people together. Mary and Elizabeth, they partnered together in the prophetic word God had given them. We see Paul partnering with different apostles throughout the, New, throughout the New Testament as he serves God. So we have seasons in life where I believe God calls us to come alongside people. And he, we have seasons that God helps us step out in things for the church and for the people of God. And they aren't always forever. David's armor-bearing days weren't forever. But there's a purpose, and it's for this day, in this season, that I believe God's called us so that we can see God's people being a blessing to the nations in the earth again today. So the story I want to tell you today and really focus on is the story of Deborah. And I love the story of Deborah. And the story of Deborah is actually a story about three women. And we know it's tied in because Deborah was an armor bearer. But I put this map up here because I love maps. And they kind of help me picture things in the Bible as, as they happened in real life. That these aren't just stories. They actually map to human history and to the history of our world. So you see the star at the very top, the red star. It's a little hard to see, but kind of squint at it. Um, this is where King Jabin was. And when, when the book of Judges opens... Israel is in the promised land. Joshua has just passed away. Remember, they marched around the walls with Joshua, and they took down Canaan. Israel's in the promise. They're living in the promise. And I think a lot of times when we hear Deborah taught, we think Israel is in such an awful place, in such an awful state, that God had to raise up a woman. In a patriarchal society, where like Diana said, women couldn't fight in battle, they couldn't own land. Why on earth Would God call out a woman to lead Israel? But the funny thing about where this happens in Judges is that this is only chapter 4. We're only three Judges in, and Israel has been rebelling, of course, as Israel does. But with the last three Judges, they quickly repented and came back to God. So we think that Deborah happens in Israel's worst place, where there's no man that could have possibly ever helped them. There's no other deliverer. But I believe God called Deborah out because of Imago Day, That God called Deborah out because he wanted us to see a thread throughout history that he said, all of humanity, not 50%, all of humanity has been called to rule and reign like me in righteousness. And Deborah was actually one of the most righteous judges in the book of Judges. So I believe this is a picture of God saying, I'm going to give you this thread throughout the entire Bible to show you what this looks like. So we have King Jabin, and he's up in the north, and he is the king of Canaan. They already defeated Canaan. Like, the Israelites were so frustrating. And so Deborah is the the yellow star, and she's sitting at the palm tree, the palm of Deborah, in between some cities, Ramah and something, I think they're in your book. Um, And she's down there judging talking to people, fixing their debates, all of this. And I love Deborah because Deborah wasn't just a judge. Actually, for the nation of Israel, Deborah is born about 300 years after Moses. And that's early Exodus, so debatable dates, that's fine. So whatever, so many hundred years after Moses. And when Moses died, remember, he prophesied that God will send a prophet like me. And the 300 years that followed Moses' death, Israel had no prophets. God felt silent to them. So when Deborah came onto the scene as a judge, as a Navi, that's the word in judges, to the nation of Israel, she was the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy because Deborah was a prophet. So not only was she administratively executing and judging the nation of Israel, but she was also the voice of God. She is the real deal lady. Okay, so Deborah is sitting in her palm tree, and of course, God's speaking to her, and you know, we only know one prophetic word that she ever spoke, and that one prophetic word was for someone else. It was for a guy who was up in that, where that middle star area was, hiding out in the hillsides. He was Barak, and he was the the general of Israel's army. And we give Barak a lot of fault. We say he was really, like, ashamed and what kind of general doesn't want to go to battle and all this stuff, but Barak was from a long line of people. His whole family heritage had a history of not showing up when the battle started. And he's the general of Israel in captivity, that word. Yeah, so when you think about it, think of how awesome you'd think you were. I'm the general of an army that is subject to a king and another general in captivity. So obviously, Barak wasn't feeling too hot about his situation in life. But because Deborah was the voice of God, she called out Barak's calling. She had a prophetic word from God that said, Barak, arise, we're going to ride up to Mount Tibor, or T-E-B-O-R, so however you would say it, Tabor, whatever, and where, where that star is, that's right by Mount Tabor. and God's going to bring Sisera into the valley, and he will be defeated. And of course, we know this story, right? Barak says, heck no, I don't want to go alone. Does this sound similar? Sounds kind of like Moses, sounds kind of like Elisha? or Elijah. I always get those two mixed up. Um, But And and Deborah says, fine, fine. I'll ride out into battle with you, but just know this. Know that the victory of the battle is going to go to a woman. But who did the victory of the battle really go to? God, it really didn't matter which individual won the battle. And we'll get to that. So Deborah says, fine, I'll go with you. So she gets on his chariot in the place of his armor bearer. So he had to have really trusted her because she's going to be bearing his armor in battle. And they ride out, Sisera rides down. And there's this great other woman randomly in the middle of the story. She's not even an Israelite. Her name is Jael. And she is the wife of, I think her husband's name is Hebor or Kenite. I have to look at my notes on this one. Her husband is Heber and they are of the Kenites. Heber is a descendant of Jethro. Do you know who Jethro is? Jethro is Moses's father-in-law, also not an Israelite, also used as the voice of God to Moses. Huh. So, Jael is probably one of the only examples of a stay-at-home wife in the Old Testament that was truly a stay-at-home wife, because all the guys rode off to battle, and she was alone at the tent by herself. <laughs> That's the closest example I get to that. And so, um, so, all the men have ridden off. Deborah's on the chariot with Barak, and they're fighting, and Sisera is... is is realizing they're going to lose. So Sisera is this tough general. He's got a history of slaughtering the men and taking the women, all captives. So they become their slaves, basically. And he has something that Israel didn't have up until David and Solomon. He has 900 chariots, um, which Israel thought was a really big deal. They were really intimidated by his chariots, but God wasn't. And so Sisera gets into battle and he realizes they're going to get beat. So what does he do? He takes off for the hill country. He goes off into the hill country, and jail comes out, and he comes up to jail's tent. She's there alone, which is really strange. We don't understand why they write it that way. Um, she's there all alone. And she says, "Well, come on in. You know, come on, come on in," as one does when an escaping army general runs up to their home. And jail does something really interesting. She offers him a bowl of hospitality. And she probably knew who he was. He was dressed for battle. But what does Jael give him in that bowl? She gives him milk. So when we get to the Song of Deborah, which we are going to get there, don't worry. When we get to the Song of Deborah, Deborah declares, I, Deborah, arose, the mother of Israel. She calls herself out as a mother, but Jael acts as a mother. She brings him in, she gives him a bowl of milk. He feels so comforted in her mothering presence. She gives him, she says, you must be exhausted with all that battle. Here, why don't you lay down and just go to sleep? And because her husband, the Kenite, had made peace with the king of Jabin, he didn't think anything of it. He just drank milk, hit a warm bed. And so he lays down and goes to sleep. And Jael, this awesome woman, goes, well, this is my opportunity so all the men are gone, all the armor is gone, all the weapons are gone. She goes outside and grabs what's on hand, which is a tent peg. And she takes a ten peg up quietly. I don't even know, can you imagine doing this? She takes a ten peg up, she sneaks up on sleeping Sisera and she drives it through his skull. Wow. So then, Beric rides up. And I, unless he threw Deborah out of the chariot in battle, which I doubt he would have done, Deborah's right alongside him, and she comes out and says, oh, are you looking for uh, General Sisera? Well, I'll just show you right where he is. And there he is inside dead. And all of the nation of Israel rejoices. And so we get to the song of Deborah. God has prevailed. And I love this. When we get to um, the song of Deborah, we see that some things have happened. First, we have to know that Deborah was the first prophet since Moses, that she was um, a symbol that God was still speaking. She was the mother of Israel, and she was an amazing leader to the people of Israel. She prophesies over Barak and calls out the leader in him. Barak witnesses, then, that prophecy fulfilled. So let's think about the crea- being created in the image of God. We see that Deborah spoke in her authority. Her right to rule and reign was recognized. Deborah then partnered with Barak so he could step out in who he was called to be. And then the people, the people of God, were redeemed. They were delivered from their enemies' hands, and they worshipped God's military might. Do you know who is listed in Hebrews 11 among the Hall of Fame of Faith? Do you know which character from this story is listed there? Barak. Barak is listed in Hebrews 11. Doesn't that just give you chills? That you get through this whole story, and really Deborah was called out. She ruled and reigned in authority. She calls out. She prophesies in function. She she prophesies over Barak. She partners with him, and he really is the redeemer of Israel. What a role she had to play for the people of Israel. So I put the entire Song of Deborah in there for you, um, because I think it is one of the most beautiful battle songs in the Bible. And actually, the Song of Deborah is the oldest Hebrew in the entire Bible, um, which means it was probably recorded and passed on. It was probably a favorite in the nation of Israel. This is one of the songs they really love to sing. And I love it because leading into this song, Deborah and Barak were singing it. So we call it the Song of Deborah, but we might want to title it, The Song of Deborah and Barak, partnered in the image of God. No, that's just what I would call it. Um, So there's a thematic structure that goes with it. You see the divine warriors march. You see the historical settings, the winners, the losers. The the battle is mythic. And then there's this conclusion. Um, We see, just through the highlights, um, you see Barak arises. There's the encouragement to march on and be strong. You see jail come out in the story. Then we have one final mother in this story. One final mother. And that's Sisera's mom. Sisera the general. And Sisera's mom um, was not in authority over Israel. Sisera's mom was really excited for Israel to fall in battle. Sisera's mom was in the wrong. And Sisera's mom waits and is wrong. So I think as women, we need to know when God calls us out, what we're called to. What are the promises of God for us today? And how are we a blessing? How do we bring redemption for the nations around us? And Deborah's song ends in Judges 5 with so may all your enemies perish, Lord, but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. So when we look at the song of when we look at Deborah's story and this whole song, which is long, but please do take the time to read it. Um, We look at how is this song analyzed and I love looking at different theological analysis of text and um, there is a a psychoanalytical theory which looks at why are there these two mothers in the story? And this isn't in your notes, this is extra. Um, why are there these two mothers? And psychologically, mothers, the mother's body and the mother represents both desire and fear and love and hate. And when we think about Deborah in jail, Deborah definitely was a warrior. She rode out into battle with Barak, but she was also his cheerleader, Right? And we look at Jail. Jail was definitely the sideline cheerleader in the beginning of the story. She was hanging out at the tent. She had the the milk bowls ready for when the soldiers came back from battle, I guess. Um, But what we see that rises up in her is a warrior. And so I think what we are called to when we look at the image of God, we are called to two things. We are called to have a message that we're going to get to next, but we are called to be armor bearers to one another. I have a calling of God on my life that I cannot accomplish if I'm not in partnership with the other people of God. And actually, it probably won't even matter if I'm not in partnership with the church, with other people that God has brought into my life. And these people were where they were because of their relationships to other people. And so when we look at the image of God and what God did in the story of Deborah, I want to take a minute and think about this. We're all called to bear somebody's armor. In different seasons of life, it might be different people, but we're always called alongside somebody. This is the person that you worry about, that you pray for, that you say, God, I see so much in this person. Well, we know biblically that God set this in place for a reason because there are people in the church that maybe um, they're not walking in all that God has for them, and they might be a barrack hiding in the hill country, and you might be their Deborah, that can call out the greatness in them, and you can see something change in this generation. So I want to take a minute and think about um, who are the people around us that we're called to support? Who are the people around us that we're called to bear their armor? So let's take a couple minutes and just kind of ponder on that before we move into message bearers. Okay, let's move into the New Testament. We've got a thousand years to cover. Good <laughs> job. Thank you. We've covered. Let's see. Yeah, we've covered fifteen thousand years so far. This now brings us to about five BC. Five BC. And. As we open up in the New Testament, we know there's there's the years of silence between when the minor prophets end and the New Testament opens in Matthew. And interestingly, Israel is again in captivity. Uh, and um, it's not altogether a totally different scene than one we see in Judges. Israel is still in this in this pattern. And um But what we see that starts in the New Testament is a shift in the role of the people of God. And Jesus comes not as a military deliverer of Israel like Barak did. And he comes not as Israel even hoped because Israel really wanted another King David. That's what they really wanted. But Jesus came to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. It's changing. And he does deliver God's people on earth, and it is a new covenant. And interestingly, when we get to Matthew 28, aren't you glad there's a 28 in all the Bible references I'm using today? Um, That when we get to Matthew 28, we see that the Great Commission reflects Genesis 128. That the Great Commission reflects when God commissioned Abraham, the first covenant with Abraham. That we're called again to be a people set apart with a purpose to be a blessing to the nations. But our battle now isn't with flesh and blood. Our battle is now principalities and spirits. And so our weapons now are only words. They're only words. Our warfare isn't against flesh and blood and our weapon to overcome it. So I want to tell you a story another story of two women and two men who played a role in the redemption of Israel with only words as their weapon. And these four people brought change for all of humanity. And so we look at our timeline, so in case you are worried about where we are in history, and I wanna tell you the story of Mary and Elizabeth. And most of the time when I read Luke 1, I think about it as the Christmas story the birth of Jesus. Um, and then I'm going to take it from Mary and Elizabeth to you today. Because I think all of these stories, everything in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, it all, all of the truths in the Bible are for us today. So let's take away from this story what we need to know for today. So we're going to move a thousand years forward and look at two more women of God that God called to set Israel free in tangent with each other. And because I love maps, I'm putting up another map. And here's the really cool thing about this map that makes me really excited. When we look at where Deborah was, guess what? That's pretty close to where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. And when we look at where Jael was up by Mount Tabor, it's not that far from where Mary lived in Nazareth. Huh. Israel's in captivity. We have two women in virtually similar geographical areas, that God's going to call out to redeem his people, to change the pace of history. Isn't that cool? So the story opens up, and we know this, and I'm going to tell the story from this slide. This isn't in the book, so if you're looking for it, it's not there. The story opens up, Israel's in captivity. They've lost ownership of the promised land, but when we look at this map, we know they don't have ownership of the promised land, but they're living in the promised land. How frustrating is that? It's kind of what we live in today. That God's given us all the promises of the kingdom of heaven, we just have to seize it. We just have to walk in it. And it happens through our revelation of Him and walking in partnership with each other that we're capable, that we have the faith and the obedience to do it. So, the story of Mary and Elizabeth is a story of faith and obedience. And the scene opens, the scene opens, um, with Zechariah praying in the temple, right? And the spirit of the angel of the Lord appears to him and tells him that he's going to have a baby. So let me read this to you so you really get to picture this in your head. Um, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer was heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. And you will have great joy and delight and many people will rejoice over his birth for he will be great and distinguished in the sight of the Lord. Sorry, this is Luke 1, 14 through 18. He will never drink wine or liquor. He will be filled and empowered to act by the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. It was prophesied that John would be prophetic and anointed by the Holy Spirit while still in Elizabeth's womb. We're going to get there. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back from sin. Could it sound any more judges? He's going to turn the sons of Israel back from sin to love and serve the Lord their God. It is he, John, who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, which is to seek and submit to the will of God in order to make ready a people perfectly prepared for the Lord. So the scene opens in a prophetic word that God is bringing out a prophet who's going to name the next redeemer of Israel. And so he, of course, Zechariah is arbaric in this story. Because what does Zechariah do? He says, how do you do this in the presence of an angel of the Lord? I don't know. I'm just glad that men doubt. Um, And people have doubted throughout history. But Zechariah goes, I... I don't even see how this is going to happen. We're old, blah, blah, blah. And the angel of the Lord says, fine, you'll just be mute. And so he totally is silenced. Zachariah says nothing again until John, the day John the Baptist is born. And the only thing he says leading up to them is to write on a slate that his name will be John. Okay? So he can't talk, so we don't care about him anymore. We're going to move on to the ladies. Um, so we know in the next scene, the angel of the Lord now pe- appears in Nazareth to Mary. This young woman who is betrothed to be married, but is not married. And he tells her that her son is to be the redemption of Israel and the whole earth. And then the angel does his most random thing. He brings up her relative Elizabeth can you imagine this? We always focus on the angel of the Lord telling her, you know, your son's going to come, he's going to rule and reign, he's going to be called all these amazing things, he's going to be the king of kings, the lord of lords, and it's so majestic and amazing, and then he goes, oh yeah, and your relative Elizabeth is pregnant. It's like you're having a phone conversation with your great-aunt, not like the angel of the Lord is telling you that your child is going to change the course of history, and somehow when the angel goes away, Mary's heart is quickened, And she hurries to her relative Elizabeth. I think God probably brought up Elizabeth for a reason. So Mary goes to Elizabeth. And Mary's pondering all of these things in her heart. Because it was pretty scary. I I told this story to my kids practicing before I came here today. And my my son goes, yeah. Because if she wouldn't have gone to Elizabeth, they probably would have caught up with her and stoned her like, wow, I guess that's kind of true, because she wasn't married yet. So there might have been two sides to that story that's not in the Bible. Um, Obviously, the angel of the Lord goes to Joseph as well. But Mary goes to her relative Elizabeth, and in a time where Israel's in captivity, it's pretty scary. And she's pregnant, trying to figure out how she's going to explain all of this. It's supernatural. And when she gets to Mary, or when she gets to Elizabeth's house, right when she greets Elizabeth... Elizabeth does something very similar to Deborah. And you know what the word prophet in the Hebrew means? It means to call out. It means to have something to call. It means to have a message. And in fact, it says that Elizabeth cried out, she called out with a loud voice. And she said, blessed are you among women. Can you imagine how much Mary needed to hear this? And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, remember what the angel of the Lord told Zachariah? When the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. We need faith, and we need obedience. It's all we need. We need faith, and we need obedience. And so just like in the story in Judges, we see the same pattern. Oops, I switched clickers so I wouldn't have to walk around. Um, We see the same pattern. We see that Mary carries the hope of Israel. She's the answer to a prophetic word from the mouth of God in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis. She is the mother of the Savior of Israel. So she is, in fact, the natural mother of the Savior of Israel. Elizabeth prophesies over Mary and calls out the prophetic fulfillment in her. She highlights the blessing of Mary and Jesus. She recognizes Mary's role as the mother of the Messiah, and she is the natural mother of the prophet who is preparing his way. Huh. Then Mary breaks into song. And the great thing about this, and one of the reasons I'm highlighting this story to you is because the song Mary sings is the only battle song in the New Testament. Not only that, but the song Mary sings while being much shorter than Judges 5 is the same pentameter, it's the same prose style, it is the same kind of song that Deborah and Barak sang over the nation of Israel a thousand years before. So we see the same pattern. Elizabeth spoke in authority. She recognized something of who God was and who Mary was and who Jesus was in her. She partnered with Mary. Her son partnered with Mary's son. John the Baptist had a very specific reason To come into the earth. And part of that was to be sort of like an armor bearer to Jesus. Because when he baptized Jesus in the river, Jesus had a Holy Spirit encounter. And so these two babies in their mother's wombs had a partnership already set in place. God didn't even come to earth being God as Jesus without partners already set in place. Isn't that amazing? Because he doesn't need to be the image of God. He is God, and he's doing what he sees God doing. He is the perfect representation of God in earth. And then finally, we see the Imago Dei play out in worship. And I think one of our greatest reflections of who God has made us is when we sing, is when we draw art. Is that what we do with art? Yeah, when we draw art things when we are artistic, when we are creative, when we do things that reflect what we see of God and our heart towards God on earth, that this worship is a reflection of God's creativity and intellect and expression of beauty today. So we see in both stories, um, is that not in there? Oh, you have to write that in on your own. So if there's mistakes, it's to see if you're following along really carefully. So um, the lead up to that is on page 24 with message bearers. And then if you would like to write over it, there might be room on that page to add in that Elizabeth spoke in authority. They partnered and they worshiped. Exactly the same thing as with Deborah. Exactly the same thing as Imago Day. You see, this is how I teach the same thing over and over again, just with slightly different stories, because I feel like it's the same thing for us today. This is the same for us today. God has called us to the same thing. And the amazing thing is he doesn't just give us people examples when he comes to earth as Jesus himself. He also walks in this same way, right? He walked with 12 men. He went to John the Baptist to be baptized. I would think as God, you could baptize yourself. Um, But he partnered with men throughout his life. And we look at this song, the song of, of Mary. And in this song, Mary is having revelation of what it means to carry the Messiah. That she didn't have or was pondering in her heart before then. And I really believe that as she sings this song, we realize that all that is required of us to walk in the image of God is to partner with each other in faith and walk in obedience. And we'll see this same pattern again in the Great Commission. And let's just go through Mary's song, the Magnificat, I think. That's bad Latin, probably, but it's fun to say the Latin words and try. Um, So when we look at Mary's song, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant." For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty, who has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Then we go into the mythic battle part. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to all his offspring forever. He's back. And he's calling out a people to be set apart as a blessing to the nations. So let's take this a little further into the New Testament. And remember, at the beginning, I said that I grew up in a church where I didn't really think I fit into um, the titles of leadership in the church. And because of that, until about a year ago, I always thought... Ephesians 4 was for people in the role or title of the fivefold ministries. And the fivefold ministries, I don't have this in the notes, um, but it's in Ephesians 4 21 through 24, and then carries on after that. So just read the whole book or the whole chapter. It's good to read it all. Um, so I always looked at it and thought there's the role of the apostle, there's the role of the prophets. There's people who teach, probably not women. There's people who are deacons. There's people who um, do all of these things. And God sets these people in place to teach the rest of us how to be Christians. Okay? And about a year ago, uh, a gentleman came into the church we were in, I guess it was two years ago, in the church we were in in Florida. And he said, you know, all the the churches called to the Ephesians 4 ministries. And I was like, huh? What about the the apostles being set in and the, the prophets being set in? And it's great because Ian actually said this last night, more or less, that the, the apostles are set in to teach us how to be apostolic. And the prophets are set in to teach us how to be prophetic. And the teachers are set in to teach us how to teach. And the evangelists are set in. None of us ever think we're free from evangelism, right? The evangelists are set in, so we know how to preach the good news. And then the last one that I can't remember right now was set in, so we could do that. And um, so... We have a part in this. We have a part in being apostolic. Each and every one of us have a part in being prophetic. We have a part in teaching. We have a part in all of the fivefold ministries. <laughs> and and we see this, but we kind of pass over it cuz we don't have a Deborah story. We don't have the richness of the Mary and Elizabeth story when the Apostle Paul talks about his partnering with people in the church, but we do see it in Romans 16, and Romans 16 was always the mystery verse to me forever, because in Romans 16, Paul clearly talks about women deacons. He talks about Priscilla, who's a female apostle, I think, if you translate it directly from the Greek. He talks about Junius, which... Theologians will try. There are some versions of the Bible that will make it Junio or Junie or whatever kind of Greek masculine thing they can do to it. But the fact of the matter is nobody debates the fact that Junius is a female name and she was a woman. And she was partnered with Paul. And not only was she partnered with Paul, but, but Paul says that they helped they each other to the faith and obedience to the message of God. So I had been downplaying my role for so many years because I was really focused on what I was called to do because I didn't really think in the church I could, it mattered who I was called to be. And so when you think about the significance of your calling, I wanna challenge you with this. We all wanna know what we wanna do. I wanna know what to do when I wake up in the morning. I have lots of degrees, I've had lots of careers. I like a to-do list. I like to check things off. I like to achieve things. I like to know what I should do. But God doesn't care about what we do. He cares about who we be. <laughs> right? I have a lot of degrees to get to that sentence. Um, so he doesn't care. what it's. The significance of our calling is in who we are. That I am imperfect. And the more I learn, the less I know. And so I need, I need Joan to come alongside me because she has wisdom that I don't have. She sees me things in me that I don't see, and so I desperately need her, or I'm gonna walk in something that's gonna be partially and not as fulfilled and not as powerful as I would've been, or actually Joan would've been without this partnership. So Paul partnered with women, and you know what gets even better? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you a little, a little secret about my preparation for today. Um, I'm at Wheaton College, which is fantastic. I love being at Wheaton. Um, They have a massive theology department with a lot of world-renowned theologians, and since I'm there as faculty, I thought, well, I can take classes for free, because once you're a learner, I guess you're always a learner, and then I realized, oh, I can get a master's of theology, and I only have to go to class once a week, so I'm in class right now in the Old Testament, learning about the Pentateuch. And I have a professor right now, Andrew Hill, who is um, one of the preeminent scholars on, uh, in Hebrew and he's one of the NIV translators, uh, on Malachi particularly. Um, and so all of the things I've talked about today, I've written in papers for my master's class <laughs> and submitted for a grade and I haven't failed yet. So I have some confidence that at least theologically, I can get a theologian to agree with everything that I'm saying right now. And as I was showing him this idea of Paul partnering with women, he said, well, Jesus partnered with women. I was like, what? And of course we know Mary Magdalene. We all know that one, you know, and we kind of feel bad for her. I mean, she was kind of known to be a a risky woman and all of this. And so we think, oh, okay, well, yeah, Mary Magdalene, Mary and Martha, sure, sure. And he's like, no, there's a group of ministering women who supported Jesus and the disciples financially throughout his entire ministry. What? Why isn't anybody preaching on that? That women should be the financers of the kingdom? Huh? It's totally newfangled. So I put it in there, Luke 8, 1 through 3. If you don't believe it, read it. A ministering group of women, including Mary, so she's still there. Mary Mary was a, a resilient woman. Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa. Susanna and many others were contributing their support out of their private means. These women were contributing out of their own personal wealth to Jesus and the 12 disciples with him. So not only do women play a role in transmitting God's message to people, But Jesus himself worked alongside women and they helped him. They partnered with him so he could take three years off from carpentry, hang out with 12 guys and spread the good news of the gospel all around until the Jews got mad enough to kill him. And so um, I highlighted the stories of women throughout the Bible because we as women are equally called to bear the image of God and walk in his authority. And I think sometimes we miss it. I think sometimes we really miss it. And I know this is God himself telling us what our place is in his kingdom throughout history. That's why I started in Genesis, went to Judges, got into Luke, and then end somewhere in, in Romans, I guess. Um, because there is a story, when you look at Deborah and jail, when you look at Mary and Elizabeth, these are women who really reflected the image of God in earth in the earth. And God used them powerfully to bring about national change. It wasn't just within their families. I know their families were changed by it. It wasn't in the local synagogue for Mary or under the palm tree for Deborah. The whole nation, the landscape of that area of the world was changed. So I believe his purpose in Genesis 126 through 28 was for us to rule and reign together as men and women because he called them And he told them to rule, to subdue the earth, and to be a blessing in it. And it has never changed. Patriarchal, war, society, it didn't change. New Testament, with Paul's weird letters that are hard to explain, it still didn't change. We are all called to carry all the ministries in Ephesians 4. We are all called to be apostolic to carry messages. We are all called to be prophetic to speak God's word. We are all called to be evangelistic, to talk about salvation. We are all called to be pastoral and to be teachers, to talk to people about how to live based on the Bible. We're called to talk, ladies. We're called to talk, to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity, which is a lot easier to do when we're in partnership with each other, in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and we become mature, attaining to the whole message of the fullness of Christ. We have to have a message. We are called out to have a voice. We are called out to speak. In fact, Ephesians 4 says, In fact, you have really heard him. And have been taught by him. And this is Paul talking to them. Just as the truth is in Jesus, revealed in his life and personified in him, that regarding your previous way of life, you put off your old self. We have this great advantage that they didn't have in old Israel, that we get to put off our old self. Completely discard your former nature, which is being corrupted through deceitful desires, and be continually renewed in the spirit of your mind, having a fresh, untarnished mental and spiritual attitude. And put on the new self, the regenerated and renewed nature created in God's image. God-like in the righteousness and the holiness of the truth. Living in a way that expresses, through probably talking to God, your gratitude for your salvation. So, as message bearers, (laughs) Jesus leaves us with this as well. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Think this is in your books. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus resurrected at this time, full of authority, relinquished his authority to his disciples. Jesus tells them to go out together in partnership, in relationship, and then he says on top of it, oh, don't worry, I'll be with you too. So not only do we have each other, but we always have a third partner in every relationship today. We have Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit with us. And then finally, we look at this verse where he says, Obey everything I have commanded you. It's simple. We just need faith and obedience. And you know how we obey everything he has commanded us? We love him and we love each other. So simple. It's so simple. It's just obedience and faith. And this today is our Genesis 126 through 28 that he has given us all the authority of heaven to subdue the earth by making disciples of nations, to obey him, to be in partnership, for it to be fulfilled in love. So I wanna ask you, what message do you carry? Think about it. We need to be thinking about this. God has put specific things on your heart. I know he has. Things to share with people, Maybe there's parts of your story that you know help connect other people to God. This is a part of your personal message. This reflects something of him that you can speak to other people. What message do you feel like you are carrying for another person? And I think also all of us carry something of God for the church. So I want to take a few minutes as we um, close out this session and go into dinner to think about the messages that we carry. Because after dinner, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the calling and what we're called to. And it, it builds on Genesis. It builds on Judges. It builds on Luke. It builds on Romans. And it brings us to today that his story hasn't changed. And we're all a part of it. Each and every one of us.